Welcome to My Millennial Career. My name is Shelley Johnson. I'm a HR consultant. M. Hey, Shell. Emily Bowen here, and I am all about the world of recruitment. And today on the show, we are joined by Kate Nielsen. Hi, Kate. Hi, Em. Hi, Shelley. How are you going? Thanks for joining us, Kate. We have wanted to do this episode for, oh, let's call it three years since the very beginning. So we can't wait to be speaking with you. Today on the show, we're talking about imposter syndrome. And to introduce you to Kate, she works for MarLab, a communications, public relations and content agency. And she's the editor of HRM Magazine and HRM Online, which are the publications of the Australian Human Resource Institute. And that's the peak body for Australian HR professionals. And we are big fans of this. So both subscribe, don't miss an issue have gained so much good content and knowledge and inspo even for this podcast over the years from your publications. Thank you. That's really kind to me to say. Thanks. And before we jump into today's episode, we just want to give a shout out to our show partner, Rarekind. Rarekind believe there's no limit to how good work can be. They create life-changing work experiences. They celebrate unique people. They build up better culture for businesses and they want their people to be their very best selves in the workplace. And I have to say, I know Rarekind, I love their work, and they work tirelessly to make this happen. So if you're looking for an uncommonly good work experience, visit rarekind.com.au. All right, let's get into it, Kate. And just to give a little bit of context, uh, I think we connected on LinkedIn a little while ago and I came across one of your articles that you'd written on HRM Magazine about imposter syndrome. And I was just like, this is amazing. This, how you kind of unpacked it, the areas of imposter syndrome that you talked through. And I, I was thinking, oh, we just absolutely need to get you on the podcast to talk about this. And so we're going to dig into that in a moment. But just before we do, I'd love to hear a little bit of your career story and background. Can you tell us uh, what you're doing and how you got to where you are? Yeah, sure. Um, First of all, you know, it's funny when you first reached out to me about this um, podcast, I absolutely had an imposter syndrome experience thinking, oh my gosh, why would she want to talk to me? I'm a nobody, Um, which, you know, you kind of have to talk yourself down from, but it is a little bit ironic. Um, But so thank you so much for having me. Um, In terms of, yeah, my career journey, I I guess, you know, I started studying journalism um, at Bathurst University, Charles Sturt University in Bathurst. And that was an amazing experience for me because I was out in the country away from home. Um, I think I went in thinking, you know, I'm going to learn how to be an amazing journalist without realising that that kind of stuff happens when you're in the field. Um, but learned a lot of really valuable life skills in that time that I think um, I would say were quite formative for me. So, you know, how to build community around yourself when you're far from home. And um, I learned a lot about leadership during that time as well. So I'm really like a huge proponent for people trying out rural universities because I had these big plans of like, I want to go to Melbourne and start my life as a big city girl and um, didn't get in. So Bathurst was kind of like my backup opportunity, um, but it ended up being the best thing I could do. So yeah, super fun time. After that, I jumped into a role with um, a New South Wales state government agency. Um, I was there for just under a year and it was actually like a super disappointing experience because I jumped into this team that was just quite toxic. There was a lot of infighting going on. There wasn't a lot of mentorship or support. And I think, you know, when you're a young, hungry graduate who just wants to jump into the world of work, you really need people who have time and capacity to give you that space to do that. And so um, I didn't stay there for very long. I then 
moved into a, a finance publication. I took on a, um, a content role there, which totally didn't align with what I wanted to be doing. I had this um, naive idea that I could, you know, be the next Zoe Foster Blake and work in the beauty and fashion and, you know, align my work with my passions, essentially, um, which I think a lot of young people entering the careers for the first time do think that. But I had a lot of people that were giving me advice at the time of just say yes to these opportunities, jump in, see what happens, learn what you can love. So I tried really, really hard to love finance for about two years. <laughs> and um, that was a bit of a challenge for me. <laughs> I imagine as well, though, that you're learning how to become or how to appear as a subject matter expert in something that you didn't necessarily know anything about. No. And that in itself could be a really powerful skill for anyone mm-hmm. in any career. Yeah. I mean, talking about imposter syndrome, like I felt that all the time in that particular role because you know, I had the title of editor there, which didn't really mean anything because I was the only content person in a team of five. But um, that that title meant that I was, you know, often invited to a lot of networking events, which um, terrified me at the time. But, I, you know, the, the whole like, go have a glass of champagne, find someone to talk to. And I would talk about anything but finance. I would kind of say, this is a book I'm reading. This is a podcast I listen to and have really interesting conversations as a result of that. But I was trying to kind of divert them from asking me anything about finance because I was terribly scared that they would uncover me. Um, but there was one experience I remember where I was at a a roundtable event for journalists and there was like the Sydney Morning Herald finance reporters and the AFR and like all these big, important, impressive people. Um, I remember, it, it might not be accurate, but I remember being the only woman in the room, the only young woman in the room. And whoever was speaking, I think it was a fund manager or something, the chair of that conversation said, okay, we're going to go around the table and everyone can ask their questions um, before so this person can kind of factor them in. And I was thinking... I don't have a question. I haven't come prepared. I was wanted to be a fly on the wall. And this guy turned to me first and said, okay, what's your name? What, what are you here to ask about? And I just said, oh, you know, I'm just new in this world and I'm, I'm here to just be a fly on the wall. And he said, well, you, it doesn't mean you can't ask a question. And I just like immediately sunk and felt like this tiny, small person. And it was a really um, uncomfortable experience, but a good lesson that, you know, even if you're not a subject matter expert, you should be coming into those situations with some questions, you know, just ask them about how you got where you are or challenges they've faced or, or something like that. So, yeah, that was um, an uncomfortable but probably important experience to have in that role. It's such a good story as well. I can think as you were talking about that, you on the, put on the spot and you go into certain like, I, I suppose, career opportunities and uh, things that maybe you feel out of your depth in and you're thinking, I just want to kind of blend in. I want to be a wallflower. I don't want to be kind of seen. I'm just going to observe. And one of the things I've noticed even early in my career, I had a similar experience. Actually, it was at a RE or the Australian Human Resource Institute convention. And there was a question time um, at one of their conferences. And I remember I had this burning question that I wanted to ask the speaker. And I was fairly early in my HR career at the time. And a similar thing of like, I just couldn't overcome my own fear of what if I sound like an idiot or what if I say something and people just look at me and think, oh, she obviously doesn't know. And so my fear of being found out overcame my curiosity for learning and my curiosity of actually, no, I'd rather get the answer and have the fear of being found out Mm. in inverted commas. I I just wonder like, has there been things over time? Because it's such a good example where you've 
had to work through, oh, okay, well, yeah, that situation is a little bit terrifying, but I'm just going to put myself out there. Totally. Yeah. I think, um, and to your point about, you know, asking a question in a, in a public space or kind of being vulnerable around other people, um, as a journalist, you, you have to do that all the time. And I quickly realized, you know, for me to do what you are doing with me right now and have conversations with people and learn about them, you, you have to ask questions. And I think, um, quite often, I had this feeling of, you know, I have to come across as asking a complex, interesting, really well thought out question so that my question in and of itself is a reflection of how well informed I am. Whereas quite often the things that elicit the best responses are just super simple questions. And, you know, you allow people space to give you a comprehensive answer then. So that's a lesson I've learned over time that I've kind of taken into my role now, which is, I guess, to kind of full circle your original question of how I got where I am. Um, my role at MarLab, where I work for HRM magazine is just to try and keep it simple, ask a lot of questions and be curious. And you don't have to come across as an expert because no one except yourself expects you to be. This conversation's already littered with these moments of imposter syndrome. And I haven't had the chance to share mine yet, but I am sure you guys will hear about them as we go through um, the next 30 minutes or so. I'm curious, Kate, did you, when you're having these moments in that room with these what you perceive to be bigwig finance experts, you're feeling like, regardless of whether it was true or not, you're the only female, you're feeling like you're the youngest in the room and you know the least. Did you have an awareness that that was imposter syndrome in, at the time or is that something you've come to learn later, maybe once you did pick up that HR baton? And I guess, can you just help us all understand more about what imposter syndrome actually is? Yeah, that's a really good question. Because I think at the time, no, I didn't identify it as an imposter syndrome. And I think that's a common way that people experience it is it just feels like almost a personal attack on your value and your worth and what you know. And if you were to kind of understand it as being imposter syndrome, you might be able to take yourself out of those really tricky feelings in that moment. So um, it's only in retrospect that I was able to kind of identify that. And I also feel like it's important to kind of caveat this conversation with like the article that you're referring to, like I'm not a expert in this other than being someone who experiences it all the time, which maybe does make me an expert. Um, but a lot of the, the, my thinking has been informed by the interview I did with um, a woman named Dr. Valerie Young, who is based in America and she's kind of thought of as one of the global thought leaders on imposter syndrome. Um, she helped to really put it on the map, um, building off the work of the people, the two clinical psychologists who coined it in the 70s. So I feel like it's important to just say that she's informed a lot of the way I think about imposter syndrome. Um, but I also think that quite often people think of it as, you know, that feeling of being a fraud and not belonging and having a lack of confidence, maybe being fearful of making mistakes, which I definitely think it can manifest in that way for a lot of people. And it certainly has in the past for me that I also think there's a lot more nuance to imposter syndrome that we need to consider. And that's where Dr. Young has done a lot of work. She's identified the five different types, which I know we're going to talk about in a moment. But um, that nuance, I think, is just incredibly important because for me, you know, while I, I felt lack of confidence and like an imposter earlier in my career, like in that anecdote I just shared, that's not necessarily how I feel about imposter syndrome now. Um, but I still, you know, every now and again will have this feeling wash over my body and I can't quite articulate what is it that I'm feeling right now. And so speaking to Dr. Young, she um, put it in a really interesting way. She said to me, it's often people's experience that they struggle to internalise their success and when she said that, I was like, ah, oh, that's exactly how I experience imposter syndrome. It's, it's a feeling of not being able to internalize what's going on and, and take praise in and really um, believe praise. 
which it kind of felt the same as when I, it's a little bit of a diversion, but when I learned about the true meaning of being an extrovert and an introvert, and there's, you know, this misconception that that means you're shy, you're confident, right? And then a woman named uh, Dr. Rachel Botsman, I was watching a, a TED talk that she did, and she's saying, no, no, it's actually about where you get your energy from. And she's standing on this TED talk stage and saying, look, I'm talking to thousands of people right now. I'm very confident, but at the end of this, I'm going to go home and be alone. Um, and finding that out for me, I was like, it was a light bulb moment thinking I've been walking around in this world telling everyone that I'm an extrovert when it could not be further from the truth. I'm an only child. My ideal weekend is like reading a book in bed and not seeing anyone till the evening. Like, but I'm confident and I'm very sociable. And so I guess, you know, it's tangential, but the point I'm making is I think we, we throw these terms around quite often, imposter syndrome and, um, you know, being an introvert and assume there's a blanket meaning behind it all. But there's that nuance, which what is what makes it, such a universal experience because you can't assume that every single person in the world, I think they say 70% of people experience imposter syndrome, which I don't know how they came to that number, but is that to assume that 70% of people lack confidence? Probably not. Um, so I think it's a really important part of unpacking what type of imposter syndrome you feel in order to be able to have tailored solutions that are actually going to help you. Shelly wants to talk, but I'm going to jump in first <laughs> because I just can never miss an opportunity to be like, I still remember the moment in my life when I learned what an extrovert and introvert really are and it's just, I'm obsessed. So just to jump in on that tangent for a second, if you haven't read and if anyone listening has not read, (laughs) has not read Quiet by Susan Cain, I don't care whether you're an introvert. She's amazing. Okay. Well, we need to have this conversation Uh, otherwise you know we're going to run out of time so we'll take it (laughs) offline but uh, whether you're an extrovert or an introvert it just is an absolute must read like life-changing for me M got me that book for Christmas one year oh subtly quiet (laughs) yeah I know I'm like I force feed it to people so that's why I thought yeah I cannot like miss this opportunity to just jump in on this moment but you know imposter syndrome as you were (laughs) I think uh, one of the things there's so much in what you're saying and I'm so glad we're having this conversation, Kate, because I've, I honestly, I wish we could pause and, uh, on every little uh, one-liner you say because it's so much gold. One of the things in just hearing you talk about internalising success and accepting praise and so, how we struggle sometimes to do that and I was reading yesterday the chaos theory in careers. And have you heard of the chaos theory around careers? No. Well, neither, neither had I, but yeah. it makes this sound smart when we throw around it terms. It absolutely like does until you say all this bit afterwards. <laughs> edit that bit out. It's okay. No yeah. one will know. Cut it out <laughs> and just think that I'm smart for a second. Um, so one of the things that they talk about is that the chaos theory in careers is that you it just kind of happens by chance and so all these chance events happen I wonder if that just hearing you tell your story contributes to imposter syndrome so if we have a perspective on careers that it's all a big chaos journey and it's all by chance and luck that we just fall into a certain job and then we fall into a promotion and we fall into all of a sudden we're the editor at an awesome magazine and if we have that perspective then yes of course imposter syndrome will come out of that because we don't take we don't take into account that actually no I've done the hard work I've actually it's not luck it's not pure chance yes some things happen that we didn't expect but actually a lot of what happens in our career is because of bloody hard work day in day out and I wonder if that is a contributing factor 
to maybe why we don't own the wins and the success and we, we don't internalise success, as you mentioned, or we're, we're slow to accept praise. What do you guys think? <laughs> uh, look, I don't know if this is going to directly respond to what you've just shared, but what I start to think about, and perhaps this is my version of imposter syndrome, is my, ro- my role, rather, is very broad and there's a small part of it that you could argue, sure, I went to university and, you know, there's an alignment between what I learnt and what I do, albeit that was a long time ago in the world, you know, lots of things change and you, you need to relearn along the way. But for the majority of my role, I don't really have a clue what I'm doing most of the time. I don't know what the answer is, but I, what I do know and what I've built confidence in is finding an answer. I'll go and research, I'll go and ask people. And to your point earlier, Kate, I think I've gotten really good at asking, hey, here's a blonde question or here's a question that, you know, I just need you to speak to me and pretend that I know nothing because I pretty much know nothing uh, and give me that answer. And that's really worked for me. But then I also get this feedback from people around me that say, oh, you're so good at your job. Embo's just so com- – Embo's my nickname. I've realised I might not have mentioned that before. Um, but, you know, Embo's so competent in her role and behind the scenes I'm thinking, oh, I just Google a lot. Like I just ask a lot of questions and I'm just not afraid to do that. So, again, I don't know if that's a direct response but I guess I'm just adding to maybe the messiness of, of trying to understand this whole thing. Yeah. I mean, I that speaks to me at both of the points you may speak to me a lot because I think, you know, quite often the simple questions, the simple solutions, the simple approaches, those are the things that like the the CEO figures and the people that we assume have these really complex and convoluted approaches, um, they prefer the simple way and they prefer you to come to them with a draft that you can build upon together. Um, So, yeah, I, I, again, and I kind of um, feel the same way in that I think learning to simplify your approach is really um, important. And to your other point, Shelley, about, you know, do you just, do things happen by luck and does that perpetuate imposter syndrome feelings? I think um, absolutely it does. I remember getting the call up to take on the role of editor at HRM. So um, I had been kind of sitting in a content producer role. I'd been in the company for about three years at the point and my boss left and that was, um, you know, a bit destabilising. So I'm thinking, okay, who's going to come in? What's next? I built a, a strong rapport there and I have a lot of... Um, Met, like support and mentorship that I'm about to lose and then I'm kind of focused on that and then our big boss comes in and says well hey Kate do you want to pitch yourself for the job and I couldn't believe it I kept thinking you know this job's five years away from me I'm too young um, I don't know enough you know I went straight to the negative and to my boss's credit he just said you know just give it a go like I'm here for you like you can pitch your ideas and I've been in the role for 12 months now and it's, you know, nothing terrible has happened. There have been some some wobbles, but, um, you know, I feel very challenged and stretched in the best way. And I think that's a complete result of just jumping into that unknown. And I feel like what I've had to remind myself of, and maybe you guys are the same, is everybody does something for the first time. Yes, And so for me, I absolutely, as I said, I feel like I'm often Googling or I'm going and asking those people around me who I believe are experts. And every time I ask them, so I've got a scenario, let's work through this together. What's your advice? What do I need to do? I take something from that. And so the next time, it's not my first time, there might be a bit of a tweak I need to make and maybe I'll check back in. But I actually do know something and I do have a sense of, okay, I know what direction we need to head in here. I've done this before. Mm -hmm. And you build on that over time. But everybody has a first time. Nobody is born knowing 
what they're doing and nobody starts their career knowing what they're doing. You know, that first year of your career is very different to your 10th year and your 20th year. Exactly. Interestingly though, you don't, you, every new challenge you still kind of face this dynamic. So mm. it, do, it doesn't feel like it lessens necessarily. It's more that we get better at responding to it. Yeah. And being okay with this is unfamiliar, but I've had unfamiliar before. So that's okay. Yeah. Mm. Kate, Let's dig into some of your reflections about this whole space of imposter syndrome. And you mentioned there's five types of imposter syndrome. Can you talk us through those? Yeah, for sure. So this is five types according to Dr. Young. There might be other people out there that have, um, you know, other elements there that I'd speak to. But um, And we've actually created a quiz that I can share with you after this. It's just like oh, an infographic awesome. but helps people to identify where they might sit. Um, I always forget the bit where it's like, let's put that in the show notes. Yeah. Shell always remembers it, but I remembered it this time. And I would love that. Also love that true journalist, you know, making sure we know the source. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, see, this is probably imposter syndrome coming through because I'm like, it wasn't me. I didn't come up with this. If you like it, it's someone else's thought. Um, but yeah, so I think people probably find they, they, they sit in maybe a couple of different camps. Like I can identify with three of the five different types um, personally. So let me just make sure I get my notes right here. So the first one is the perfectionist. So people who, you know, near enough is never good enough. And if their work isn't flawless, they deem it to be a failure. And that has to be, remember, that has to be flawless um, as deemed by themselves. It doesn't matter if it's impeccable and someone else is saying, you've done a great job, Shelley, and I'm like, it has to come from within, which it doesn't because they're suffering from imposter syndrome. Um, the second type is the expert. So um, Dr. Young refers to these as like the knowledge version of the perfectionist. So it's not so much about the quality of their knowledge, but the quantity. So people that think I have to do another course, I have to read another book, I have to get another certificate before I'm going to be deemed good enough to take the next step. So they're constantly kind of putting up barriers for themselves. Um, obviously, there's a fine line there because you do want people who are hungry to learn and continue to develop themselves, but it becomes like a debilitating thing for these people. Then there's the natural genius. So these are people who believe that their intelligence has to be inherent and if they have to work towards anything um, and it, or struggle to master a skill, they think that they're an imposter because it should just come naturally to them. Um, the next one, which is a camp that I sometimes sit in, is the soloist. So these are people who... Um, if someone helped them along the way, they don't internalise that success because they feel that they should have been able to do it on their own, um, which isn't necessarily saying that they don't want to collaborate. It's more so that they just feel like there's this internal thing that says you have to be the one to prove that you can do it. And um, as an only child, that's that speaks to me on so many different levels because I'm constantly like that. And the last, the fifth one is the superhuman. So this is another camp that I kind of see myself jumping into sometimes. And these are people who feel they need to excel at every aspect of their life, both professionally and personally. So they're the people that, you know, I need to be the best partner, friend, parent, employee. You know, they've got all the plates spinning in the air, which, as you can imagine, puts their well-being at risk. I want to be like nudging him. <laughs> like, this, is, this is you. I was trying not to make eye contact. <laughs> Like under the table, kicking her. Like the first four, I'm like, oh, maybe I might need to do the quiz, or maybe I fit in that thirty percent of people that you know don't genuinely experience it. And then and you know, boom, at the boom, end. yeah, there she is. Yeah. Wow. I oh, that's so helpful to actually hear you talk through that. There's these different distinctions between how you might experience imposter syndrome, and I can I feel like a lot of those really relate. How have you seen it? Um, I guess 
in your conversations around this? Have you seen it come out in your own life? You mentioned that you relate to the soloist one. What were some of the other ones that you related to? And can I add to that? Do you mind teasing out just in one or two places how that has, I'm going to say hindered. You're welcome to say help, you know, you interpret that as helped or hindered, but I would, you know, suspect it's probably hindered. How has that hindered you? Yeah. Hindered, I mean, I think, so I see, see myself in the soloist, the natural genius and the um, superhuman, mainly superhuman and soloist, but that's kind of where I see myself. Um, soloist, the way it's hindered, and I think um, this is probably broadly speaking, but I, I can imagine because I'm speaking on behalf of other people who might work with me, um, I imagine at times it could come across as if you feel that you don't need other people's help and therefore unintentionally you're saying, I don't value your contribution, which couldn't be further from the truth, but um, there would be reputational damage that can come off the back of something like that if people think, you know, she's a bit of a know-it-all, she likes to hoard all the work. Um, so I think it's really important to be aware when you're doing that and make sure you are inviting other people in to have perspectives because, you know, no one's going to think that you're meant to be able to do this all on your own. Um, the natural genius elements, or maybe more so the expert actually, I think can hinder people because they might, you know, stagnate in their careers because they're never willing to take that next step. So this isn't a personal experience for me, but I think just speaking generally, um, those people who feel that they need to kind of acquire more and more knowledge potentially aren't um, climbing up the ladder as fast as they could be. And then the superhuman, um, and M, you might want to jump in and share, you know, your like, experiences as well. Should I lay on the lounge? <laughs> Is this going to be a therapy session for me? <laughs> My experience of being of being in the superhuman world is actually it's really interesting because when you are spinning all those plates, there's a lot of there's short term benefit to that and there's short term gains because personally I can have a two week period where I'm absolutely killing it with like all the things I've overcommitted to professionally and personally they're all working out really well for me so I have an adrenaline boost from that and I'm thinking you know who who are they to tell me that I can't do all this because like I'm doing it and then. I crash and burn dramatically and that might be a weekend where I'm just like I have to sleep a lot or I don't want to see anybody or, you know, whatever. And that can bleed into the next week, which means you're coming in with a bit of brain fog and the quality of your work is impacted, which perpetuates your imposter syndrome feeling. So it's like this big cycle. So that's my experience of um, being a bit of a superhuman. I don't know if you have a, a different one, Em. No, that speaks to me. So um, that makes total sense. And I guess that's the funny thing about it is you try and spin those plates and, and keep them spinning and you try and do that in a way where everyone's going to give you an A plus and yet, yeah, the flip side is you actually run out, can run out of steam for that weekend and then so you're feeling like, oh, I'm, you know, that I've ignored that plate or I've neglected that plate. Is it still spinning? Has it slowed down? Is it about to wobble off? So it is really interesting and I guess – no topic that we talk about exists in a vacuum. So you start to then bleed into uh, burnout or um, I guess other parts of your personality, whether that be how you handle failure and so on and so forth. So I'll be mindful not to head down those rabbit holes, but I absolutely hear what you're saying. And the other reminder that I try and share with myself as I navigate being, trying to be a superhuman is what I expect of myself in a relationship, whether that be friendship or, or otherwise, is actually so much more than what they expect of me. Like your friends actually mm. think you're wonderful. So yeah. you don't need to go as above and beyond as you think you do all of the time. Totally. And, and I definitely, you know, need to have that as a reminder to myself. So, you know, note to self when I'm listening back, <laughs> hear that. 
Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we've created a bunch of different podcasts. So go and check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business, and Gen Z Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast. The other thing I loved in what you were saying, Kate, around the natural genius one, it really reminded me of Carol Dweck's book, Mindset. Um, And if you haven't read it, if you're listening, make sure you read it. It's a really good book. It talks about growth mindset and how one of the barriers to having a growth mindset is that you think that skills are inherent or innate. I either am a leader, I have that natural talent, or I'm not. I'm either good at you know, this or I'm not. And instead in her, her research, she's found that the, the most talented people have that growth mindset. Instead of thinking you're a natural genius, I think genius and strength comes by hard work and, and continually developing. And I think it's a good antidote to imposter syndrome because it's the reminder of, I don't have to have it all together, but I, I can, I can trust myself that I can work hard and grow. Mm. And I love that idea and that, that perspective. What about for you, what strategies do you feel that we can use to overcome this sense of imposter syndrome? Mm. I mean, I can speak to strategies that have worked for me. One of them is actually super simple and I was surprised by how effective it was, but it was inspired by, um, there's an artist I follow on Instagram called Mari Andrew. Have you guys heard of her? Oh, actually. She does this really like- does she? Yeah, has she done some work for Zoe Foster-Blake who you yes. spoke of earlier? Yes. Yeah, I know who you're talking about. She does about. these like gorgeous little slice of life moments and, you know, she kind of speaks. She's a beautiful writer, so she does illustrations and kind of written pieces that um, just kind of speak to nostalgia and like a bit of a soul hug. She's, she's wonderful. And she was talking about her experience of trying to get her illustrations turned into a book, which she eventually did. Um, but the process to getting there was just littered with rejection letters after rejection letter after rejection letter. And so eventually she decided, okay, I'm going to collect all these letters and illustrate them and I'm going to create a, you know, a series, an art series out of them. Um, and I thought that was a really cool way to kind of take control of the emotions a little bit. And I thought I could do something similar myself. So I knew when I was stepping into this editor role that I was kind of also stepping into being criticized and receiving constructive feedback, but also um, just sometimes cruel things that people on the internet want to say to you. And I'm a bit of a soft soul. So I thought, okay, I need a strategy going into that to be okay with that. So I started for a whole year, I took a screenshot of every single piece of negative feedback I got. And I put it in a uh, folder on my desktop called the feedback folder. And I told myself one day we're going to do something cool with that. I'll write an article or whatever. But I never really like had to dip into it. I just left it there. And for me, that was a fantastic way to, to detach from the negative feelings that kind of bubbled up inside me when I read a bad comment or got a piece of feedback that didn't feel good. And I haven't, yeah, I haven't really had to dwell on those things. And I have a personality that likes to ruminate on negative stuff. So that was a really interesting strategy for me. I also created a positive feedback folder that I do dip into a lot, which is good when you're feeling a bit down and you need to remind yourself of impact you've had in the past. Um, so that's one thing I do. Another thing um, I'm trying to do, work in progress, um, is be really self-reflective when I do have those negative feelings bubbling up. So I think it's important to kind of, we're not trying to eliminate imposter syndrome or any negative feelings because they're trying to tell us something important, right? Like I think you need to sit with them sometimes. So I might be like, okay, I'm feeling imposter syndrome. Does that mean that I, maybe I didn't do a very good job because I rushed it or I was busy. 
um, and therefore I need to either start again or redistribute my workload so I have more brain space or whatever. So kind of use it as an indicator for what else could be going on in my current world. Um, and the last point would be it kind of, and it kind of piggybacks off that is normalizing vulnerability and normalizing owning mistakes, which in the past, um, I'm incredibly avoidant naturally. So I kind of would like push them away or I'd, I'd find a solution before I'd kind of showcase what the problem was because I wanted to be able to show myself as being solution driven. Um, but as I stepped up and, you know, I think this is probably a good one for leaders as well. And um, maybe we should all be thinking of ourselves as leaders in some capacity because, you know, there's someone in your personal or work life that probably is influenced by you. So we have a responsibility to role model good behavior. But I try and put those mistakes on display with my team and say, like, you know, I made this, I made a bad call and this was the result. And you often find that um, not so much your bosses, but your peers, when you do that, will try and placate you and say, no, no, like they were in the wrong, you're okay, like they want to make it feel better. But there's a huge power in being able to say, no, I made a mistake, I rushed, I skipped a step, I was going above my skill level and I didn't ask for help and this is what happened as a result of that. Um, so, yeah, that's another thing that I'm trying to do at the moment. But, you know, again, work in progress. Work in progress is something I feel like I'm continually reminding myself of. I love that you've mentioned that multiple times. And for me, I think I relate really strongly to that perfectionist element of the five um, types of imposter syndrome. So kind of reinforcing that of it, it's a work in progress and that's okay. Like things don't need to be all together, all the ducks lined up in a row. The other thing I loved in what you're describing there, Kate, of talking to friends and owning the failures when they happen, it even makes me think back to what you were saying around being a, a soloist. It almost teaches you when you when you observe the fails, it teaches you that what caused that was my soloist thing kicking in and I wanted to go, do it all myself and instead of asking for help, I tried to drive it and it failed. And I think the reflection of well, why did that fail? Well, that's connected to my imposter syndrome. Like that's connected to what I'm trying to avoid. So it's actually helping you the feedback loop to stop the behavior in future situations, like, and getting to that. It's mm. lots of deep thinking, but it really will help if you're in that cycle to realize, well, this is how I break it. It becomes a circuit breaker when I reflect on what those failures were. Mm. I think that's a really interesting point. At times I've heard in and amongst imposter syndrome chat for and against arguments for the the phrase fake it till you make it. Oh, I hate it. <laughs> okay, I was looking for the reaction. <laughs> Talk to that. Tell us why you hate it. I think it's I think it's such old school thinking. I think maybe it speaks to a culture where, you know, back in the day where you might have put your head down, work hard, prove your worth. We've moved beyond that and we're now thankfully in much more collaborative cultures where we're forefronting psychological safety. So saying, you know, you should be able to speak up and speak out and point out a problem and ask for help. And I think the fake it to make it thing just tells people that they that their imposter syndrome feelings aren't real and that they don't need any support to overcome them. And of course they do, we all do. And you need to first of all figure out, you know, what type you're experiencing and then call upon the people in your life, be they your friends or your managers, to help you come up with, as you're saying, Shelley, circuit breakers so that when you are going down that path of, you know, unhelpful, unproductive behaviour or thinking, you know, in order to be a leader, I need to be a soloist, um, you have someone there and you have guardrails to remind you that, no, this isn't actually how you're going to get to where you want to be. It's actually going to make it take a lot longer than you want. 
And this is such a good discussion for me to be a part of because I absolutely will put my hand up and say I throw fake it to you, make it around from time to time. And what I've come to realise with more thought and consideration is that the way I was using it was actually a little bit of a vote of confidence to myself to say, you don't, you haven't done this before. You don't necessarily know what you're doing in any expert kind of way, but you've got this. Mm. Like show up, have confidence, give it a crack. Use all of those skills that you've got in finding information, relying on people and being open and happy to ask blonde questions in inverted commas. Uh, And then so I use that, you know, fake it till you make it as a bit of a throwaway to capture that. But what I've come to be more considered about and what I'm challenging in, in I guess, my own language and actually I might park that phrase and not use that anymore Mm. is because of uh, what you're talking about and just actually recognising how there's a connection and how it's perhaps not healthy and and for in particular scenarios for some people, it's not a throwaway comment. It it does go deeper than that. Mm. I think a rebrand of that could be just jump in the deep end. Like Mm. that's that's saying all the things you just said then, like, you know, you've got to put yourself in unknown situations. You've you've got to back yourself, you know, you've got to try it before you figure out if you like it or if you hate it or if you're good or bad at it. Um, But it takes away the element of the, the shame of not being able to ask for help. Totally. Consider it done. So, gosh, I'm honestly like, I feel like I'm using so much self-control to not like keep keep, going because I'm like, there's so many things that I want to ask you about. And this conversation is like so helpful and just mind blowingly good. I have a couple of, we have a couple of other questions we want to hit on. So I was actually, I came across this um, Harvard Business Review article and it's a really great insight, I think, into some of the fallacy around imposter syndrome and that I think the the article title is why we need to stop telling women they have imposter syndrome and we'll put it in the show notes as well. So we'll have all of this um, there that you can have a look at. And I guess the whole premise is that there's been this rhetoric around imposter syndrome that, well, women are more susceptible to it. And I just wanted to know what's your take on that, Kate? Have you ever thought about that or um, yeah, what's your perspective? Mm, I thought that article was really interesting. I liked how they kind of drew links between the way we used to like historically treat women's pain and say, you know, or their medical issues and say, yeah, it's just female hysteria, um, which I think still happens in the medical system today, to be quite honest. But um, this is probably the modern version of that. We're kind of putting women's emotional pain and saying, oh, it's just imposter syndrome, which again, puts the onus on them to fix it. So I liked what the author was saying. And, and she was coming from the perspective of being a woman of colour in America who was probably experiencing more so overt bullying and exclusion than she was imposter syndrome. And she's saying, you know, we need to stop saying that we need to fix women, we need to fix the institutions in which women interact with them, which I thought was a really lovely way to think about that. So I think that's definitely worth keeping in mind when we're having these conversations in a workplace context is that before you go and and just tell someone they have imposter syndrome, because that really has to kind of come from them, right? They're the ones who know how they're feeling leaders and workplace people in in workplaces have influence need to look at the foundational levels of their cultures and say what can we do to elevate voices um, and not just elevate but also respect and action the things these people are saying in the same way that we do for those in the dominant group um, which happens to be you know in most circumstances be men Um, yes that was my kind of takeaway from that article which was really quite interesting piece and there was this awesome thing that they said and I I've I love this thought around competence doesn't equal confidence. Mm. And 
I know actually um, in some of the content on, on gender bias, often when you're sitting in an interview, the person who's the most confident and comes across and communicates confidently has a really positive outcome. But that isn't about their competency. That's really about their communication. Mm. Did you have any, I guess, experience with where you've wrongly associated competence with confidence? Um, probably, I can't think of a personal experience, but what this quick question makes me think of is um, a phenomenon that I recently wrote about um, for HM Online called the Dr. Fox effect. Have you heard of that? No. I hadn't heard of it either and it's really interesting. It's this experiment from the 70s where this guy, Dr. Fox, comes in and um, I think he's delivering a lecture to a bunch of um, psychiatric students or, or physicians and he, they're, he's, he's, they're told he's an um, expert in mathematical game theory. He's not. He's an actor. Um, he, he's presented with a long list of accolades. All he's done is like read the equivalent of a Wikipedia page so he can pepper the right jargon throughout um, and then he goes, gives his presentation and all the students rated him really positively, even though he's saying absolutely nothing of value. They've got no idea of what he's talking about. Um, so I thought that was really interesting and kind of also connects with another like bugbear I have in the office, which is the use of jargon, which I hate and I think um, can contribute to people's feelings of imposter syndrome because it's super alienating. And the fact that, you know, we're speaking to each other in like a secret code because we're part of this club. You know, we only learned that jargon six months ago, right? So we're kind of acting as if this is just how people operate here. But if you've got people who are sitting in a meeting room who are you know, busy taking down acronyms and jargon to look up later because they don't feel safe enough to ask a question, you're missing out on the value that they can add to that conversation because their brain is just in overwhelm. And that doesn't really benefit anyone in that room because everyone has a perspective to offer, right? What I really like about that is it's inspired me to ask the next question because you're talking a lot through this conversation about your own self-reflection, self-awareness and strategies that you've put into play for yourself, which I've loved. But now we're getting to what can you do to influence culture in the workplace and to influence the experience of others in the workplace in regards to imposter syndrome. To wrap us up, do you mind, Kate, sharing, um, I guess, in addition to what you just have, what is one thing that people can do in order to create a safer culture around imposter syndrome in their workplace? So whether you're a person of influence in a leadership role or you're, you're a person who has influence because you're a peer, it actually doesn't matter. You can still influence culture. And so what is that piece of advice you would give on what we can all show up and do to make it a safer place? And second to that, if there's something that you could encourage us all to do in our week, in regards to overcoming our own imposter syndrome when we face it, uh, we'd love to hear that as well. So two pieces of feedback oh. if we can squeeze those out of you before we let you go. Squeeze you for all your work. Totally. <laughs> we are loving this discussion. Yeah, it's a really inter- I'm really enjoying it as well. Um, we probably could talk for hours and hours on a topic like this, right? Um, I think the first question around what you can do to create like a culture that kind of, I guess, pushes imposter syndrome to the side, I'd probably refer to what I said earlier about, you know, owning mistakes and create and leadership owning mistakes to create the permission for others to do the same. And maybe off the back of that personally, it's just, um, you know, never avoiding failures. Um, I think we have this tendency to be like, you know, what can I avoid? What should I never do again? But I think we should, even like our catastrophic um, screw-ups shouldn't be swept under the rug. We should be laying it out and saying, you know, what can we make of this? So it's learning how to soak in a failure without, 
I guess, letting the, the pointy edges of it hurt you too much because, you know, you do need time to go away and lick your wounds. And, you know, I wouldn't pretend that I don't need that because I absolutely do. But I think being able to say, you know, we're a culture that celebrates failures and um, moves forward with them is one thing you can be doing. Um, what was the second question? Sorry. I think you've just answered them. <laughs> yeah, no, it's so fine. The second one was just around, you know, what is that thing that we can do personally? Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, look, I mean, you're welcome to keep telling us all your gold. But um, what I like about that idea that you've just ended with is that it does hit on what we as a human can do and, and that is allowing that space to lick your wounds, such a nice way to put it, but then not sort of moving it to the side yet, actually coming back and and having a chat with the people around you or a safe, you know, advisor or somebody to actually do a debrief mm. on that experience with once some of those emotions have settled. Mm. And as we touched on earlier, there's just so much interconnectedness. We always experience it through the conversations we have. And I just start thinking about an episode that we did on fear. And if you as listeners haven't gone and and listened to that episode, I would really encourage you to do so off the back of all of the things that Kate is talking about, because I feel like this play between fear and imposter syndrome is really nice. And, and I think people will get a lot out of that. So... Thank you so much, Kate. We, as I say, we could just sit here and just milk you for all your worth for so much longer. But what is the best thing to know is that you do write for HRM Magazine, um, HRM Online. And so we sort of can't get rid of you that easily. We can actually go and find you and, and continue to learn from you. Oh, thank you. It's been um, really interesting to learn from you both as well. Thanks for inviting me to have the conversation. Loved hanging out. And if you have a career opportunity or risk, listen to Kate's advice, jump in the deep end and tell us how you go. Jump on our Facebook community or Instagram and let us know. My Millennial Money, you'll find us there. We're always hanging out. And also, I'm going to end, end, end. If you're listening and you enjoy the show, please leave a rating and review. We love your feedback and it helps us get the podcast out there, which is awesome. Thanks heaps. Yeah, thanks, Kate. You're really good at what you do, so don't forget it. Oh, thanks, guys. See you later. Thank you. We acknowledge the dark and young people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits and pay respect to their elders, past and present. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. Hey, thanks for listening. We love learning how to do all things well, which is why we've created a bunch of different podcasts. So go and check out My Millennial Money, My Millennial Money Express, My Millennial Property, My Millennial Health, My Millennial Business and Gen Z Money. Find these wherever you're listening to this podcast.